Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 160, Murders and Wedding Bells. Now, first, I want to thank our newest patron, Mike Sherburn. I rarely get to mention it. Usually there's just a short period of time between the last episode or the first episode of a month and the second episode, but Mike got in just in that two-day window. So congratulations. Welcome to the team, Mike. Thanks so much for the support. Then I wanted to quickly, again, remind everyone that if you're interested in hearing me and other history podcasters speak at the Intelligent Speech Conference this June 25th, you can get your tickets at the early bird price with a 10% discount when you use my code Bulgaria. As I mentioned before, I'll be on a panel talking about the migrations of the Circassians. Now, if you don't remember, these were Muslims living in the Caucasus who faced a kind of brutal expansionist war by the Russian Empire and fled that war into the Ottoman Empire where many settled in Bulgaria where many of them took out their anger against the Russian Christians on the local Bulgarian population, quite, I mean, tragically. Um, And then, of course, then faced kind of retaliatory attacks against them later on. And so their arrival in Bulgaria, you know, meant a lot of kind of violent cycles. And then ultimately, once Bulgaria gained their independence, they largely fled to other parts of the Ottoman Empire. So I'm going to kind of be, you know, doing a talk about what their story tells us about kind of borders and modernity and just sort of how the modern world came to the Ottoman world and what the results were of that. So should be super interesting, and I hope some of you will join me. And with that, let's get into the episode. So last time, the Bulgarian church softened its position towards Stambolov and Ferdinand in part because the Ottomans gave Bulgaria three bishoprics in Macedonia. Overall, though, things are both going reasonably well for Stumbleoff. His foreign policy is paying off, official recognition for Ferdinand is inching closer to reality, and he won a convincing victory in the 1890 elections. However, a failed assassination attempt triggered a brutal crackdown of Stumbleoff's opponents, which generally showed that despite his victories and his successes, Stumbleoff and Ferdinand were still honestly quite vulnerable. Then to make matters worse, conflict between the two over power within the government is also kind of steadily increasing. The first Bulgarian Socialist Party was also founded, and the downfall of Otto von Bismarck in Germany signaled a new era of European politics. However, the first major event of 1892 would be a blow against Thambolov's diplomatic efforts to move closer to the Ottomans. One of Bulgaria's most able diplomats in Constantinople, Dr. Georgi Volkovich, was stabbed during a city carnival there. The timing was important because the festivities of the carnival allowed the assassin's mask to avoid drawing any attention. To further throw the authorities off the trail, the killer yelled, this is to avenge my wife's honor, as he murdered him. But in reality, the assassin had been smuggled into the city with false papers by the Russians. This was soon uncovered, and anger against Russia was immense in Bulgaria and throughout Europe, as Volkovich was a very successful diplomat and very well-liked amongst his European counterparts. Now, the irony was that Volkovich had been warned that the assassin was after him, and Stambolov had basically decoded a letter with this information, but the diplomat sort of brushed it off, said, "Ah, I'll be fine, there's always threats, yada, yada, yada. 
Now, Russia decided that the men involved with this and the Belchev murders had to be basically sent out of Europe for the sake of Russia's image. Both of these assassinations made Russia look very bad on the entire European stage. And so they were the, the kind of men responsible and connected to it were sent to Tokyo. Now, to those who knew Stambulov, it was clear that the murder of these two men, these were both men that Stambulov knew pretty well and considered friends, it, it started to really change him. The latest killing kicked off another round of attacks on Stambulov's political enemies. No real surprise there. But, you know, from this point onwards, Stambulov, despite having more sympathy than ever from a lot of Bulgarians and foreigners, he's more and more of a loner. He's more paranoid, spying on his friends and his enemies alike, just wondering when the assassins will come for him and who he can really trust. A lot of his friends and supporters, while sympathetic, are by now gradually becoming more worried about Stambulov as a man and as a leader. But beyond his personal sense of loss, these murders made Stambulov more determined than ever to ensure that Ferdinand married and produced an heir. You can imagine, if he's already worried about the possibility of Ferdinand being assassinated, seeing a bunch of his friends be assassinated will only increase that worry. As a result, shortly after the Volkovich assassination, Ferdinand once again set off to the rest of Europe in search of a bride. But before we cover that, I want to finish up discussing Ferdinand's previous mission to find himself a wife. I mentioned last time that this was absolutely critical for Ferdinand and Stambolf alike, and at the moment, if Ferdinand were to be assassinated, and Russia was definitely working hard to make sure that happened, Bulgaria would be thrown into absolute chaos. However, if Ferdinand could find a wife and produce an heir, this would go a huge way towards ensuring the country was stable no matter what happened to Ferdinand. However, a few key problems are presenting themselves. First, Ferdinand was and remained an unrecognized monarch from a poor and somewhat unstable country. And just as bad, Bulgaria's constitution mandated that the heir to the throne had to be orthodox. So a prospective bride would have to be okay with her children being raised in a different religion. And while well, both those made the difficult job of finding a wife much more difficult. In early 1891, Ferdinand's mother had been talking with the Duke of Tuscany about a potential marriage between the prince and his daughter. Faced with the prospect of marrying his uh, daughter to Ferdinand, the Duke was actually delighted, while his wife hated the Coburg family that Ferdinand was from and was against the marriage. Still, it was agreed that Ferdinand and Princess Marie Louisa would meet in June of 1891 at Ferdinand, one of Ferdinand's family, Hungarian, well, yeah, the Hungarian castles of Ferdinand's family. Now, I'm going to quote Maria Louisa's memoirs at length to describe this meeting, or really they were kind of ghostwritten, but it's an interesting little peek into Ferdinand's style and what others thought of him. Quote, Ferdinand was most elaborately attired in a light gray suit with an ultra-chic Panama hat. He constantly waved his well-manicured hands and displayed the costly rings which glittered on his fingers. He attitudinized like a narcissist and kept posing until he thought doubtless I was sufficiently impressed by his fine figure, his rings, and at last but not least his smart yellow boots. Then he suggested a walk in the castle gardens. End quote. Now, after presenting her with flowers and the color of the Bulgarian flag, the memoir goes on to describe the following conversation between them. Would you like to see Bulgaria, Cousin Louisa? Obviously, they're all cousins. Oh, yes, if it isn't too uncivilized. 
Is that all you can say? He cried in an excited tone. Then I will speak. I have known you long enough to appreciate your good qualities. I admire you. I feel lonely. We'll get married, I said lightly. I have thought of it, but met with no success, replied Ferdinand. And that it is a good thing for now. I know you are alone and a woman I can love. Well, I said with mock earnestness, let me assure you at once that I do not and could not love you and should not be happy as your wife. Oh, Louisa, he pleaded, I would do everything for you. It would be of no use, I answered. But I love you so dearly, he persisted. I lost patience with him. Cousin, I said, do realize once and for all that I can never love you. C'est la première fois qu'on femme que uh, me dit cela, he exclaimed, which, my rusty French, this basically means this is the first time a woman has ever said this to me, which that made me laugh when I read it. Uh, he goes on, be wise, Louisa, think of all that lies in my power to give you. I quite realize your worldly advantages, but you would never be able to give me real happiness. Listen, Ferdinand, I continued seriously. I'm not sure you only want to marry me because I'm an Austrian archduchess, and the word archduchess stands for love in your vocabulary, and you have promised to your ministers to return to Bulgaria betrothed to one. Well, I shall not marry you. All right, end quote. Now, again, it's a, just the, the account made me laugh. I wanted to share it with you all because it was just an interesting exchange, uh, and in particular, sort of Ferdinand's exclamation in French just uh, cracked me up. You know, after reading this account, it turns out she changed her mind. Now, when I originally was reading this, I thought that this was the woman who ultimately he married. But no, it just turns out they are both kind of more or less from Italy and their names are almost the same. But we'll get to that later. So, you know, uh, this is from Stephen Constant's biography of Ferdinand. And he quotes a passage because it kind of shows how half-hearted Ferdinand's attempts at wooing were in this case. Like, he... You know, he wasn't that interested, I think, in getting married. His mother had arranged this match. His heart wasn't in it. Uh, in any case, you know, this is what he was putting out there. And in the summer of 1881, he finished his trip without securing himself a bride. Now, this brings us back to spring of 1882 and Ferdinand's second trip to find himself a wife. Now, while Ferdinand intended to visit a number of European capitals, his main destination was London and the Royal Hunting Lodge of Balmoral. There was no bride waiting for him there, but the previous year, Ferdinand had written of his excitement over the prospect of marrying the queen's school-aged granddaughter, that is, Queen Victoria. However, everyone, everyone else basically thought it was clear that the British would never allow such a match, and in fact, the biographer Ferdinand was a bit confused because he's he knows these rules, he knows this world, and he doesn't understand why Ferdinand would have ever thought this was realistic, but in his letters, Ferdinand was very excited over the prospect. Before getting to London, the first stop on the trip was France, where Ferdinand and his mother could meet his uncle. Now, this visit wasn't really that important, but I wanted to mention it because the excellent joke Ferdinand's uncle made upon seeing him for the first time in many years. Basically, he said, Ferdinand, is that you? Well, here we are. I'm like Europe. I don't recognize you. And that just made me laugh. More, more, more just fun things to share with you all. But after that trip, seeing his uncle for the first time in a long time, they get to Balmoral. Now, despite Queen Victoria's initial opinion that Ferdinand was entirely unfit for the Bulgarian throne, he had actually he made an excellent impression on her during this trip. She very much liked him. Despite this, however, she had to reiterate that an English royal marriage was totally out of the question. 
London just could not risk the fury that such a move would draw from St. Petersburg. So it, it, it's funny just the extent to which the fact that Tsar Alexander III of Russia doesn't like Ferdinand, just how that affects everything. Everything Bulgaria or anyone connected with Bulgaria wants to do, it's sort of all influenced by the Tsar's sort of personal dislike of Ferdinand. It's, it seems baffling, but there you have it. But despite the fact that, you know, the British still felt they couldn't risk Russia's ire, the feeling in Europe towards Ferdinand had by now shifted pretty substantially. At this point, England, Italy, Austria-Hungary, and even Germany to some extent, all wanted Ferdinand kept on the Bulgarian throne, even if none of them could officially recognize him. So, ironically, they all actually wanted to ensure that Ferdinand found a bride and produced an heir as soon as possible, just as much as Thambolov did. But there just wasn't a lot they could do to you know, help along the way for the most part. So yeah, all those good wishes towards Ferdinand, they only get you so far. After his warm reception in the UK, Ferdinand traveled to Germany. There, his request to meet the Kaiser and his new chancellor were politely turned down in a roundabout way to avoid Ferdinand the embarrassment of saying no directly. Again, they just couldn't risk upsetting the Tsar. Still though, they were sure to let St. Petersburg know that they had refused the meeting. So they they sort of roundabout way without being very direct, turned him down and told St. Petersburg, see, 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 we, we refuse to meet with them. So don't be angry with us. So yeah, Bismarck may have been gone, but Berlin was still for now working hard to make sure Russia was kept happy. In his frustration, Ferdinand decided to meet with the retired Otto von Bismarck in Munich. And being out of power, he didn't really have to worry about upsetting anyone with what he said. And so he was able to share some frank advice. He told Ferdinand, quote, Be circumspect and avoid doing anything in your policy which would ignite the spark that will turn into a great conflagration. Play dead. You, should, you have shown the world that you can swim, but do not try to swim against the current. Let yourself be carried along slowly and stay on the surface as you have done up to now. Time is your greatest ally, the force of habit. Avoid doing anything that might irritate your enemies. If you do not provoke them, they cannot act against you, and in time the world will become used to seeing you on the throne of Bulgaria. End quote. Of course, the irony, the supreme irony of this uh, advice is that Tsar Alexander hardly needed a provocation uh, to act against Ferdinand, and he'd been trying to assassinate him basically from the moment he became a serious contender for the throne. So, yeah, you can take uh, Bismarck's advice with a bit of a, a whole bit of salt. But still, the frustration of that advice really capped off Ferdinand's second unsuccessful trip in search of a suitable bride, and he returned to Sofia pretty bummed, you could say. Uh, when he returned to Sofia, the trials against Thambolov's enemies following the Belchov murder had just concluded. I talked about those in the last episode. But if Ferdinand's trip abroad had failed in its main goal of finding a bride, Stambulov had a successful trip of his own around this time, when he visited Constantinople and was met by the Grand Vizier and the Sultan. Although the Ottomans had not always been very helpful in chasing down uh, the Volkovich murderers, that happened on their territory, you'll remember, they were pretty warm and openly admired Stambulov, treated him very well, really kind of rolled out the red carpet for him, and made it clear that they were ready to recognize Ferdinand as soon as it was kind of practical to do so. Remember, by this point, you know, they appreciate the fact that Stambulov is trying to be close to them, trying to work with them, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, 
And so they're treating him very, very well. And by extension, Ferdinand, they see both of them as sort of agents of stability in Bulgaria, which is still, you know, technically legally part of the Ottoman Empire. Importantly, the trip was also a chance for Stambolov to meet with the Bulgarian exarch, Exarch Yosef, to discuss the changing of Article 38 of the Bulgarian Constitution, the article that said that royal children had to be raised in the Bulgarian church. Not all the royal children, but basically that the next Tsar had to be uh, Orthodox. Remember, this was an enormous sticking point, preventing Ferdinand from finding a suitable bride. And although we don't have details of Stambolov's meeting with the exarch, it seems that he recognized the practical realities and agreed to at least not raise too much of a fuss about amending the constitution. Speaking of which, Ferdinand and his mother were gradually accepting that their original goal to marry him to the daughter of some reigning European family just wasn't going to happen in the current geopolitical reality. In fact, during that most recent trip to find a bride, Ferdinand had met with the Austrian emperor who urged him to consider marrying the daughter of the Duke of Parma. Now, the duke was a member of the House of Bourbon Parma, descended from King Philip V of Spain, as well as Charles X of, of France. Uh, so basically he had, you know, Spanish and French background, but, you know, was the Duke of Parma in Italy and was, you know, not so prominent because when Italy was unified, his throne basically vanished. So, you know, he seemed like a good candidate, well, not him, his daughter seemed like a good candidate because, yeah, she she had a, a long pedigree. In fact, the two of them were related, no surprise there, from sort of branches of the Bourbon family that split in 1830. And yeah, his eldest daughter, Marie Louise, was, yeah, an impressive woman, uh, not quite the same level of Queen Victoria's granddaughter, but she was 23 years old and well-educated, good background. She seemed like <laughs> really the best candidate for Ferdinand, but frankly, practically the only candidate that Ferdinand really could consider. But the major obstacle to the marriage was still Article 38 of the Bulgarian Constitution. The Duke would only agree to his daughters marrying Ferdinand or his daughter marrying Ferdinand if their children were raised Catholic. This is a major sticking point. No surprise being from, being from basically Italy, Spain, and uh, France that they're pretty serious Catholics. So, there was no getting around it. Ferdinand needed an heir for Bulgaria to be stable. But for Ferdinand to get an heir, he would need a suitable wife. But he could only get a suitable wife if the constitution were changed. But changing the constitution was going to be tremendously unpopular. The church was going to be mad about it. The everyday people were going to be mad about it. So in light of these realities, Stambolov decided to take the full weight of the move onto himself, to take all the political flack personally. He knew Ferdinand and the Exarch basically accepted or supported the move. But for the country's longer-term stability, he would have to take the political backlash of this to keep it off of Ferdinand and, well, the Exarch wasn't going to take it no matter what. But essentially, he argued that Ferdinand was actually opposed to changing the Constitution, but that he was insisting on it. Again, realizing that as minister president, he was temporary, but Ferdinand was going to be around for much longer. And so Ferdinand's kind of position in the country had to take precedence. So Stumbleoff gathered members of his liberal party to ask their opinions, and not a single one was willing to back him on this. But this did nothing to change the political realities, and Stumbleoff persisted. I mean, th this was life or death. This was essential. It's it's a little bit ironic, right, that it seems like the, the stability of Bulgaria and everything 
is sort of resting on the the ability of some Catholics to accept that their children might not be Catholic. It seems crazy, but that's where Bulgaria found itself at this moment. Now, once his opinions on changing the constitution became public, Stamblov's old enemy, Bishop Clement, spoke out loudly against the move. So even though the exarch had kind of agreed, in theory, to back off, Clement didn't care. So Clement basically was confined to a monastery before being put on trial for sedition and sentenced to three years spent in another monastery. No surprise Russia was furious about the change of the constitution, but I... Frankly, I imagine Russia was furious when Stamboloff made toast or put on his pants in the morning. I mean, it feels like everything Bulgaria does, Russia is furious. And frankly, the irony is that this is Russia's fault, right? The the reason Ferdinand can't marry someone who's Orthodox is because all the sort of Orthodox, uh, um, you know, potential brides for him are connected with Russia and Russia won't allow any of them to marry them. So, you know, there you have it. So... Stamboulos backing the constitution worked. You know, the constitution was changed in the early days of 1893. Uh, However, instead of immediately locking in that marriage with Marie Louise, Ferdinand decided that this meant that he should have more options. And so he traveled to Munich to explore the possibility of marrying one or two Bavarian princesses. However, he was told by the Kaiser in no uncertain terms that this was unacceptable and not going to happen. So Ferdinand left Munich a little bit humiliated, and on his way home, he stopped in Vienna to accept and finalize the marriage with Maria Louise. Now, it may not have been the marriage Ferdinand envisioned for himself, but it was a marriage, and it's what he needed. Queen Victoria and the Austrian emperor were absolutely delighted by the announcement, while the Tsar was, again, brimming with fury. But what are you going to do? Forget the fact that, again, he basically set all this in motion. But so Ferdinand had found a bride. The marriage was agreed to. But just who exactly was Maria Louise? Well, she was the eldest of 12 children, and her mother had died when she was 12. So <laughs> she she put she was, I guess, doing about one child a year for those 12 years. Um now, she grew up in southwestern France in kind of the French Basque country, uh, as well as in Switzerland under the care of an English governess. She was a bit reserved, particularly with Ferdinand. I mean, he was uh, far from reserved, as you will know. But she was quite intelligent, very cultured. She spoke, she spoke five languages, enjoyed painting, playing the guitar and piano, and consumed literature. She was a voracious reader. Ferdinand's mother described her in a letter to Queen Victoria as, quote, unhappily not very pretty. It is the only thing which is lacking. She is charming, good, very witty, intelligent, and very likable, end quote. But, you know, it's it's not super surprising. Clementine, uh, you know, Ferdinand's mother has very, very high standards for her son's bride. And so it's it's one of those mother-in-law situations where I can hardly imagine she would be fully satisfied with anyone. But even the, she had, you know, mostly good things to say about her future daughter-in-law. Now, ironically, the wedding was actually held in Tuscany at a Bourbon villa, which had been sort of beautified and restored somewhat for the occasion. And it was somewhat fitting as the bride and groom were technically cousins, both descending from the Bourbons. And as I mentioned before, their marriage was a sort of way of reuniting the family after a split between two factions of the family in 1830. Now, none of this meant much to the average Bulgarian, 
but the marriage was still extremely popular in Bulgaria. People were excited to see the kind of restoration of a new dynasty after five centuries, and the marriage in general and the success of it helped boost Stambolos' flagging popularity ahead of new elections. All that is to say, he needed the boost. Although, quick pause here before I continue, uh, I did find some pretty interesting photographs of them at the wedding and things, so I highly recommend you check out what the bride and groom looked like at this moment and what the marriage and the wedding looked like in the episode description. Uh, you can find the link. Also, just it's kind of funny and ironic that the wedding didn't happen in Bulgaria, but there you have it. Uh, none of my sources mentioned a particular reason why. Frankly, there might have just been security concerns or they might have been like, yeah, well, there's no point. We won't be able to have the kind of ceremony we feel we deserve in, you know, poor backwards little Bulgaria to put words into their mouths. So we'll have it in Tuscany. But again, as I mentioned, Stambulov could have could use the uh, kind of increase in his popularity. His power by this point, was still immensely strong, but in some ways starting to fade. As I've mentioned before, Stamilov's approach to government made some sense, but also contained fatal flaws. Bulgarian democracy was chaotic and would likely struggle to handle both its internal problems and all the kind of problems that come from St. Petersburg, you know, all the Russian money willing to kind of cause chaos. So, you know, as I said, there's a bit of an argument to be made that Stambolos' authoritarian style made some sense and gave the country a little bit of breathing room to economically and politically stabilize. But that stability held the seeds of Stambolov's own downfall. As Perry put it, quote, It was the educated in Bulgaria who made up the majority of the politically conscious people. At first, they supported Stambolov. But with prosperity gaining and law and order in the land becoming the norm, as memories of the assassinations dimmed, they grew tired of Stambolov's authoritarian approach to government. End quote. Perry went on to point out that Stambolov's isolation further kind of underlied the fact that his political instincts weren't evolving as the world around him changed. You know, this is a, a period where the world and Bulgaria are changing incredibly quickly. People's expectations and, and beliefs in government and democracy and things in Bulgaria are changing. What people want from their government is changing. And Stambolov's more old school, kind of Ottoman-derived authoritarianism, as many argue it is, just kind of fit with the times less and less. Now, in part, kind of recognizing that things were changing, Stambolov did finally lift censorship laws in August, and in response, a wave of new newspapers were founded, opposing him loudly. And these kind of fanned popular frustration with his administration. To make matters worse, the good harvests and generally positive economic indicators of 1890 and 1891 by, had at this point given way to falling international grain prices and seemingly ever-increasing taxes on peasants, which were necessary to finance arms purchases from Germany. Remember, I mentioned, I think a few episodes ago, that just after Ferdinand came into Bulgaria, they started massively increasing military expenditures. So in general, the peasants really did face the bulk of the tax burden, while the bureaucratic professionals were largely not taxed because of their political power. They were able to get away with it. You know, there's no surprise. This is the, the same story throughout Europe uh, for not just this period, but centuries past, right? The, the wealthy are ironically the ones not taxed, whereas the poor are taxed practically to death. But still, the, the realities of that tax system were starting to weigh on people. And 
Frankly, beyond those weapons purchases and kind of finance for the army, a substantial portion of Bulgaria's budget was going to financing Stambulov's enormous internal security apparatus. Remember, he's spying on just about everybody. He's paying people off. He's just doing everything he can to maintain internal security, and that is expensive. Now, as I mentioned, Stambulov did enjoy some popularity. I mean, he was winning elections, although they're somewhat rigged. But you know, yeah, the voting is still overseen by thugs who ensures he get what ensure he get what he wants out of elections. But you know, for a time, his popularity was real. But just you know, people getting used to and kind of taking the stability he brings for granted, and getting frustrated with the taxes, and just generally sick and tired of him. Right? Almost any leader, if you're in power long enough, people get a little tired of you. Now, to be fair to him. Stumbloff really seemed to genuinely think what he was doing was best and remained open to being persuaded. You know, I, I, th- I give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because the way he acted, I don't see him as someone who sort of wanted power for power's sake. You know, the, we talked before about like the happiest he was was right after he got Ferdinand on the throne and he was not in government for a while and he just seemed super delighted and was a bit reluctant to take up the mantle and become prime minister again. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I give him a bit of the benefit of the doubt, but by now it's just he feels like a person from another time. For example, you know, when Stumbleoff held audiences where members of the public could come and ask him questions and make requests, well, Perry quotes a contemporary writing about this, stating that, quote, whatever he promises is as good as performed, end quote. Before Perry points out that, quote, Such showmanship had good public relations value, but in the long run, it could not replace the need for greater governmental efficiency, end quote. So, you know, Stambula's style, his methods, they worked for now. You know, they they got decent results. They brought some stability. They brought some economic prosperity, but they just, they were not sustainable. And that's where I'll leave off today. Stambuloff is still managing to largely get his way. You know, he wanted the constitution changed, even though few people outside of him wanted it. He, he got it done. He's, he's gotten a lot of diplomatic successes. He's, he's still successful, but despite all that, the seams are beginning to show in his tightly woven web of control over Bulgaria. And next time we'll see where that goes. We'll see the increasing rise of opposition to Stambulov. Uh, and I will also talk at length about Aleko Konstantinov's trip to the Great Columbian Exhibition in Chicago based on his book, To Chicago and Back. That'll be kind of fun. So you won't want to miss that episode. And that's it for today. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out more details in the episode description below where there's a link to the blog post with images, timeline, major characters, all kinds of stuff to help you get the most out of this episode and every episode. So that's it. See you next time.